The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to episode 130 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. This is our bonus episode for the month of July. We made it through the month. It's it's not only the bonus episode, but it's also the last day of the month when this drops. And oh my goodness, wow, this one is a doozy. What a way to end the month. (laughs) The incredible Robert J. Sawyer is here. Well, you know, not here physically, but you know what I mean. He's coming up at the interview in just a few moments. And again, just wow. For me, this conversation was reminiscent of when I first discovered Robert R. McCammon just uh, like 10 years ago. I didn't know who McCammon was at the time. I picked up one of his books from my childhood that I recognized because uh, I'd always wanted to read it. So I picked it up read it. I was like, wow, I wonder if this guy wrote anything else. <laughs> you know, <laughs> joke's on me. Didn't know who McCammon was at the time. Very much the same way here with uh, Robert J. Sawyer. The name sounded familiar. You know, I, I was in that headspace. The name sounded familiar when the opportunity came up to do this interview. And I thought, oh yeah, great. Yeah, let's let's bring him on. I'll uh, be happy to interview him. And I had, you know, I was having one of those days where I was just extremely busy. And Naturally, something comes up where I had to drive like over an hour away last minute to go help my daughter. So I go do that, come back with minutes to spare, and I'm pulling up all my information for Robert J. Sawyer. I'm checking things out while my computer had to reboot. And that's what I'm discovering just who this guy was that I was about to interview. And, you know, (laughs) it was one of those moments where I realized, wow. Uh, this was a little serendipitous because, you know, had I realized who this was, I mean, surely you listening to this show, you possibly had a better idea of who Robert J. Sawyer was before I did because, and, and we discussed this during the interview, how, you know, me being someone not widely read for a long time, I was unaware of Flash Forward, although I was familiar with the TV show and so many other of his books. So, of course, you know, once I started to see these books that I've heard of, TV show, the TV show, all these things that I realized, oh, wait, I I am aware of this person. I am aware of who he is. And, (laughs) and, you know, like I said, I think had I had days to prepare for it, I might have been uh, more nervous than I was going into the interview. But as it was... I think it went really well. We had a really great conversation and oh my gosh, he is he is so much fun to talk to. I had a blast. Uh, we are talking about uh, his reading recommendations because like I said, we talk about being widely read. In fact, we even get into the phenomenon of reading broadly versus reading deeply, uh, which was a fascinating uh, subject. We talk about hard sci-fi and what that entails. The book from his childhood that contained a character from his own hometown that would go on to inspire him in his writing career, inspire him to do great things. So much goodness in this 
you know, relatively short interview. And when we go to his reading of his latest book, The Oppenheimer Alternative, fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> you are in for a ride. It is fun. It is lively. And hot dog, you are in for a treat. So stay tuned. That interview with I'm going to say his name again, Robert J. Sawyer, coming up in just a moment. First, let me just go ahead and thank our sponsors real fast, starting with U-Storeall out of Warrensburg, Missouri. They are the premier self-storage facility with two locations, climate control and non-climate control. Both facilities fully fenced in and more than 60 cameras recording 24 hours a day, and they run things off of solar power, so they're a clean and green facility. Hey, check them out online at ustoral.net, and that is spelled the letter U-S-T-O-R-A-L-L.net. And as always, I'm so happy to talk about my favorite writing software, Scribner. I've been so happy to be diving back into my writing with fervor here recently, having a good time. Uh, it's interesting. I am in the mornings. I am now editing my story it's it's like my everything is flip-flopped so i'm editing in the morning on scrivener on my novel idea novel that i hope to come out real soon and then during the day during my lunch breaks when i don't have a whole lot of time that's when i am feverishly writing on my new stories adding that little information and i think that little bit of panic knowing that i only have 10 or 15 minutes to write is helping add to the momentum that I'm gaining with the stories. So that's been fun, but Scrivener is what I use in all of that. Hey, check out this commercial for the software and make sure you're listening for that coupon code that's gonna save you 20% on the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. And now I want to hop on over and thank our podcast networks that we are a part of, starting with Pop Goes the Culture Network. They have at least half a dozen other shows on the network, starting like... Um, the Amazing Nerd Show, Fanatics and the Fan, and The Way Awesome Show, and more, including their flagship show, Pop Goes the Culture Podcast. Hey, make sure you click the link in the show notes so that you can get on over and find out more. And it's not just podcasts, but it's it, as a network itself, they have blogs, they have all kinds of articles, everything pop culture related that you could be looking for. It's there, so check it out by clicking that link in the show notes. I also want to thank my second network that we've been a part of and having a great time with, which is Project Entertainment Network, with more than 30 shows, uh, around 35 shows now, shows like Your New Opinion, 
the Armcast Dead Sexy Podcast, Hard at Work, Hash Time with Duncan, Hobbies Include Writing, Matters of Faith, Monster Attack, and so many more, including my own show, The Sample Chapter Podcast, all within that 35 show range, many, many topics, just like this one that you're about to hear an incredible ad for. You don't have to find an interdimensional saloon to have a pint of alien beer with me, Chrissy Garrison. Just tune into my Alien Beer podcast each Thursday, and I'll share my speculative fiction stories with you. And every other week, I'll be serving up a new installment in my science fiction serial, The Multiverse Blues. Meanwhile, catch up with me at sillyhatbooks.com slash podcast. See you there. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's another one of those incredible shows at Project Entertainment. One that you got you to gotta go in and check out. So click the link in the show notes so you can find out more about that. Hey, uh, while I'm talking about podcasts, I do want to take a moment. This has kind of popped up on me, and uh, my this July has gotten away. Uh, and <laughs> I realize this is the last day of the month. But if you enjoy this show, if you have been a fan of the show, I invite you, um, I implore you to click the link in the show notes for the podcast, for the 2020 Podcast Awards, which... <laughs> the sample chapter podcast is a part of now uh you can click the link in the show notes and head on over to that website and vote for the sample chapter podcast as your favorite show i am uh this is up for an award in the arts category and also in the people's choice i i'm not gonna lie i have in my wildest dreams I have a chance. I, I really don't think that that's possible. I'm sure there's plenty of other shows out there, but that are, uh, you know, do much better than this does. But, you know, this is the little show that could. This is the show that puts the focus on authors of all type, whether they're brand new and this is their first book, or they're somebody like Robert J. Sawyer, who has had incre an incredible career. I want to focus on all the authors, and that's what this show is for. It's to give them a give them that platform to announce their their work and share it with the world. So the opportunity to even compete and bring more awareness to the show, I think is incredible. Uh, just, you know, <laughs> just getting to compete in this is a great opportunity. And, you know, and if, if this can bring some more attention to the show and thus bringing more attention to my guest authors, then I am more than happy to do so. But I need your help. I need you, like I said, I need you to go in there and vote for the show. Like I said, it is in the arts category and, of course, in the people's choice. So you click the link in the show notes for the 2020 Podcast Awards. You make an account, which is free to do, and you can choose to vote, you know, if they'd like you, if you'd like them to contact you to vote in the next round or not. But, uh, yeah, I need your help. If we're going to try and at least make our presence known, then hop on over there and uh, vote for Sample Chapter Podcast. Thank you so much. You guys are incredible. Don't forget to follow the show on social media, Facebook, Twitter, our website over at SampleChapterPodcast.com. We're also on YouTube and every podcast platform available. If you want to reach out to me, you can do so at email, SampleChapterPodcast at gmail.com, or leave a voicemail or send me a text message at 660 Four, six. And uh, yeah, if I like your message, I'll play it on the show. 
probably even if I don't like it, I'll probably still play the message. But <laughs> that'll be on the next episode. Without further ado, let's hop on over to our interview with the incredible Robert J. Sawyer. Ladies and gentlemen all over the world, welcome to a very exciting new episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. This week's guest really needs no introduction. He is one of only eight writers ever to win all three of the world's top awards for Best Science Fiction Novel of the Year, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. He also has won the Robert A. Heinlein Award, Edward A. Smith Memorial, the Hal Clement Memorial. It goes on and on and on. His novel, Flash Forward, was even the basis for the ABC TV series of the same name. Without further ado, Robert J. Sawyer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, my goodness. This is such an honor for me. I, I'm so happy to have you here. And as I was admitting to you before, I haven't read your books, but I'm seeing now what I am missing out on. And I cannot wait to start diving in. Uh, first of all, how are you doing and are you staying healthy amidst uh, the pandemic? Yeah, I'm doing fine, actually. And I don't mean to minimize anybody else's unfortunate circumstances. I have a number of friends who have lost people, people who have died to COVID-19. I'm painfully aware of how bad this pandemic is. But for me personally, things have been fine. Now, as you know, Jason, I have a new book out. Well, I would normally have been on book tour for most of the month of June, promoting it, bookstores, mm -hmm. literary festivals, science fiction conventions, science fiction being my genre, but all of those disappeared. They couldn't take place this year. So I'm melancholy about the closing of so many doors, but I have to say I travel so much normally year after year after year, being forced to stay home, not because I have the disease, just because there's nowhere to go, <laughs> uh, and uh, catching up on my own reading for pleasure has been, you know, very, very congenial. I've, uh, I'm doing just fine. Thank you for asking. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, you know, and that's something that uh, I don't think we really, uh, I don't think we really realize how much a uh, productive writer like yourself really gets the free time to read recreationally like you do. Uh, have you read anything uh, interesting lately that uh, really speaks? Yes, actually, and it was entirely on a whim. I read the novel In the Heat of the Night by John Ball, oh, yeah. uh, which was the basis, of course, for the Sidney Poitier, Rod Steiger movie from the 60s, mm -hmm. and then later the TV series starring Carol O'Connor yeah. from uh, the 80s. But I'd never read the original novel, and of course, we're all very conscious of the very fraught relationship between policing and uh, people of color currently. And it just, it just there it was. And I thought, I'm just going to read this. It's a spectacularly good book. It holds up remarkably well. It came out in 1965, so we're talking 55 years ago. I wish I could say, I'm sure everybody wishes we could say that that prejudice that's depicted in it, uh, that uh, small town, small mindedness that seems to infect even the biggest cities and the highest offices these days was a thing of the past. It isn't. It's a really well-constructed mystery novel. It's a great character study. And it's not long by today's standards. In fact, we wouldn't really consider it novel length, about 
60,000 words, which is a good 25,000 shorter than the shortest book you'll normally see for sale in a bookstore these days. But I recommend it thoroughly. I happen to go and get the ebook of it, but it's in print, Penguin Classics. It's an ebook. It's an audio book. It's a terrific read. Oh, wonderful. I will have to check that out. That's my, uh, one of my things I love to do every month is, is to pick up a classic. Mm-hmm. Last month, I just read Dune for the first time ever. Same year came out, 1965. And, uh, it, you know, these books that are still being read 55 years or 100 years or more after they were written, there's a reason, right? Isn't there, mm-hmm. Jason? You get into them and yeah. you say to yourself, my God, I understand why people are still reading this stuff. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was, it, it blew me away. I, because for me as a kid, when the movie came out, it kind of scarred me. I only saw b- bits of it and it was out of tech, out of context. Sure. So <laughs> I had no idea what I was expecting. And I, I made my own assumptions as a, as a little boy, like, okay, that's, uh, that's not for me. And uh, so it was nice, you know, to be here. I am now I'm almost 50 and I'm reading it for the first time and just blown away with, Oh my gosh, what did I miss out on? This is incredible. Yeah, it's a spectacular piece of work. And, you know, obviously Herbert wrote, I guess, six sequels for a total of seven books from his own hand. And then his son, Brian, who is a friend of mine, and Kevin J. Anderson, who collaborates with Brian, Kevin is one of my best friends, have produced many more works in that Dune universe. So it's still, you know, a franchise that's going strong five and a half decades after it first appeared. Amazing. Amazing. So now what was... Was there a uh, a book that uh, stood out as an influence for you in your early days of writing? Well, that's interesting. Yes, I'm going to name a book that actually is normally thought of as a kid's book or a YA book at best called The Enormous Egg by a writer named Oliver Butterworth. And it was published by Scholastic. It's still in print. It's been in print for 60 years plus now. And it is an honest-to-goodness science fiction novel. It is, if you read it as an adult, a very funny satire about big business, about the stuffiness of academia, and about Madison Avenue and the advertising industry, all hinging on the atavistic birth of a triceratops from a hen's egg (laughs) in a a little uh, summer town, they call it, you know, a town where people go for cottaging and lake fishing in the summer called Freedom, New Hampshire. And it's just an absolutely terrific book. I loved it because uh, it was, it was a, a tale about dinosaurs, which I've always enjoyed. I loved it because the world's greatest expert on dinosaurs in that novel was said to be a man from Toronto, where I lived. And when growing up in Toronto, as I did in the 1960s, we didn't think the world's greatest anything came out of Toronto, let alone Canada. And uh, it really said to me that somebody from my town could be on the world stage. And so I never looked back when people said, you'll never make it as a Canadian, as a Toronto guy writing science fiction. That's, that's for the big boys in the United States. Well, that novel, The Enormous Egg, had my role model in it, in that uh, Professor Morrison, the world's greatest expert on dinosaurs from Toronto. <laughs> It's amazing when you look back and like for myself, I'm, I feel like I'm early in my writing career still early in my reading career, even because I, I had like so many books, only so many books I read repeatedly growing up. And now that I'm, I'm been widening it in the last half decade, 
and I'm discovering like Heimlein and some of these others and then realizing, wow, here's this incredible science fiction mind that was from right here in Missouri where I am and uh, discovering, you know, such a world and an open world, amazing world like this is. But it's interesting what you said about reading a limited number of books, but rereading them. It's a phenomenon really of the last 70 years or so for people to have access to cheap books. That's about the lifetime mm. that the paperback has existed, 70, maybe 80 years. Um, and prior to that, most people's reading lives would be, they would be lucky if they had a couple of dozen books in their house growing up mm -hmm. and they would reread, whether it was Dickens, whether it was the Bronte sisters, whoever it was, they would read and reread and reread. And in some ways, yes, reading broadly is a wonderful way to learn to become a writer, but reading deeply by going back over and over again and looking at a text and saying, okay, I know how it turns out. Oh, now I'm seeing how they set it up so it'll turn out that way, <laughs> is also extremely instructive. And that going back and rereading a text is something that very few new writers bother with anymore. They're always hungry for some new experience instead of saying, now let's go back and, and really dig into this one a second, a third, a fourth time. So uh, I don't decry your literary education to this point, but I'm glad you've discovered Heinlein and, uh, and uh, Frank Herbert and... Uh, all the other fine people whose names start with the letter H. <laughs> uh, well, that's very nice. Hemingway, to say. I hear he's yeah. good. Hemingway. I, you know, I, that name sounds familiar. <laughs> I've heard that that's somewhere. Right. That's right. <laughs> Speaking of which, of course, at Toronto, where I live, he used to write for the Toronto Star newspaper uh, back in his journalist days. So uh, we have a, quite an affection for him up here. Oh, my goodness. Wow. See, and that's one of the things I love about doing this show is speaking to authors, either brand new or experienced like yourself. And every time though, I'm still learning something new. Cool. And, and this is just, this is amazing. This is such an enriching experience for me here. Just having the conversation that we're having so far and we haven't even really dove into your books or anything. So what was a, what was like an earliest story for you? Something that maybe didn't come out, but something that you wrote as a child. Well, that's interesting because, uh, you know, I sold my first story when I was 20 years old uh, and um, have pretty much at this point in my career, I'm 60 now, mined almost everything that I ever wrote. <laughs> so there's not a lot that, that I haven't eventually made use of. I even wrote a novel called Triggers a few years ago where uh, a, a simple code system that I invented when I was 10 years old for exchanging coded messages with a friend of mine in a grade four in public school ended up being a plot point. I put that into the novel. So there are not many shop floor sweepings left to be cleaned up and used <laughs> in the Robert J. Sawyer writing machine at this point. But my themes, the things that have interested me, have stuck with me. My current novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative, has nothing to do with dinosaurs, but it certainly has to do with the potential for human extinction which goes right back to that childhood interest, for instance. I've always been interested in science, and the Oppenheimer Alternative is all about the great physicists of the 20th century, not just J. Robert Oppenheimer, the title character, but Enrico Fermi and Hans Bethe, Richard Feynman, and such luminaries of luminaries as Albert Einstein. 
Oh, okay. Do you have a preference for for a certain element of science fiction that you that you really like to dive into, or is it kind of all appeal to you in just depending on the day? So I'm what's called a hard science fiction writer. Doesn't mean that what I write is difficult necessarily, or that the science is complex and hard to understand. It simply means the science is rigorous, mm. but with and, and any extrapolation I make of it is reasonable. But within that framework, I like to think of myself as the guy that people say, I can't believe the guy who wrote the Oppenheimer alternative, which reads an awful lot like a historical novel, is the same guy who wrote Starplex, which is a novel that goes 10 billion years in the future and deals with all kinds of alien races, is the same guy who wrote the political thriller Quantum Night is the same guy, blah, blah, blah. The romantic science fiction novel Rollback. Uh, I like to think that I explore every nook and cranny, but do it from a rationalist, intelligent, curious person's point of view. But every nook and cranny of my genre. Oh, yes. I love that. I love that. It reminds me of like my own, my own realm, I guess, would be thrillers. But I think that encompasses a wide range and it can bring in sci-fi it could be almost horror it can be uh, you could have a thrill romance i think and i love exploring the different aspects of that right now and, and of course like i said I'm, I'm trying to read widely but i'm also to just trying to devour as many different types of thrillers as i can so yeah that's the way, right way to do it exactly it would be purgatory for me i've written 24 novels at this point it would be purgatory for me to write anything that was similar to anything that I'd written previously. I uh, got into this with the old Star Trek mantra to explore strange new worlds. Mm -hmm. I have zero interest in revisiting tired old ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now do you have a, um, do you have a character in your, in your history that was particularly difficult to get a hold of oh it is the title character in the current book j robert oppenheimer he was difficult to get a hold of for a few reasons the first was that he really was a very very difficult man he uh suffered from he'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia uh he was probably given the time he lived in a closeted homosexual uh, trying to live a heterosexual life, and that tore at him. He was an absolute genius, one of the brightest men who certainly has ever lived, and he was incredibly self-destructive. Um, so that was a very hard character to write about just because of who he was. But then there was also the fact that no matter how much research I did about him, and I did tons, <laughs> he, I would never be the world's foremost expert on J. Robert Oppenheimer. There are historians who devoted careers to studying Oppenheimer. And I had to make sure, unlike any character that I'd ever made up in every previous book I've ever written, the previous 23 novels, all of the principal characters were entirely products of my imagination. In this case, Oppenheimer wasn't, nor was Einstein or Bohr or, or Teller or any of the other characters in my book. And I had to do an enormous amount of research so that those who either had studied them in depth as historians or their living children or grandchildren uh, would recognize and say, yeah, you captured them. Uh, 
And what's been so gratifying for me is to have people like one of Edward Teller's grad students uh, or um, a Martin Sherwin who won, wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning, co-wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Oppenheimer, American Prometheus, praise my book, The Oppenheimer Alternative. But it was an extraordinarily hard character to write. And, you know, I like to think of myself as a bright guy. But when you're writing people who are brighter than yourself, that's a lot harder than writing people who are stupider than yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. Most of the time you're writing average Joes. I like to think that most successful writers are pretty high up on the IQ scale. You have to be, right? You have to be a keen observer. You have to have a, f uh, a fluency with the language that most people don't have. But when you're writing a book where the entire cast practically is genius level, when many of them, either at the time that you're writing about or subsequent to the period that I'm writing about, went on to win Nobel Prizes, you've got to realize that you're writing something that's, you know, almost definitionally impossible to conceive. I can easily conceive of what it would be like to be stupider than I am. Some days you just feel that. You wake up and you never quite, you know, heard this phrase, you got up on the wrong side of the bed. You, nothing is quite gelling in your mind. That's easy to conceptualize. But to conceptualize thinking faster than I do, to conceptualize thinking more complexly than I do, that's an extraordinary undertaking for anybody to do. Under, to do. Oh my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can, I can almost imagine that'd be, that would be very similar to writing uh, almost, a, I, I want to say an alien species or somebody that's just completely alien to you. You're exactly right. Now I come at this, although uh, the Oppenheimer alternative is an alternative history novel uh, you can read it if you're certainly, if you're a historical novel buff, but I come to it with the toolkit of a science fiction writer, which I do think very directly influenced my ability to portray minds that are different from, and in some cases, many cases, on an order of intellectual capacity greater than my own. And your average historical fiction writer, all due credit to them, does not have that skill set. But having written extraterrestrials professionally, my first story came out 40 years ago, my first novel 30 years ago. Having done it professionally for decades, I'm pretty good at making it believable for the reader that they're reading about a kind of cognition that they themselves are not capable of. Wow. What, what was the, the draw and the genesis to creating the Oppenheimer alternative? There were several, but the one I'll mention here is very straightforward. This is the 75th anniversary year of the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. uh, August 6th will be the 75th of Hiroshima and August 9th of Nagasaki. And the last time a lot of revisiting of those issues occurred was 25 years ago for the 50th. The 50th anniversary, a lot of the principals were still alive, and there were a lot of people still grinding axes and, you know, trying to shade it one way or the other. At this point, I think we finally have a certain amount of historical dispassionate distance to really assess what was good and what was evil about what we, the Allies, and Canada was one of the three partners in the Atomic Bomb Project, Canada, Great Britain, and the United States were the three partners in the Manhattan Project. What my country, your country, and the Brits 
wrought on the rest of the world, it's time for a serious assessment of what that did. It gave us the Cold War. It gave us the fear of nuclear annihilation. But maybe it also gave us this stalemate that has led to peace for 75 years. Nobody has used an atomic weapon in 75 years uh, against anybody else. They've been used in testing, but not against anybody else. So it seemed time for a reassessment. It just seemed that was this book, the zeitgeist was right for it. And I know that I made the right choice because I'm seeing a number of other books. Nobody else has got a novel out as far as I know this year involving Oppenheimer. But just yesterday, Amazon delivered a poetry collection to be called the Manhattan Project, collection of poems about the Manhattan Project by a Canadian poet. Uh, Chris Wallace, the um, Fox News correspondent, has a, a new nonfiction book out called Countdown 1945 that deals with the last hundred odd days leading up to the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. So it's definitely was in the zeitgeist to do this reassessment. And I'm glad I'm the only one to thought to do it fictionally at this juncture. My goodness. It, it sounds incredible. I, 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 it's certainly going to be probably one of my first books of yours I'll be picking up and, and diving into, and I cannot wait to uh, hear more about it. Can you tell us about uh, uh, what are you working on now? I have been enjoying my leisure since the book came out <laughs> on June 2nd. I have been in negotiation. I just had a note today from my agent on a big project that will conceptually deal with in a science fictional metaphor the way our world has changed because of COVID-19 and how we will never go back to the way things were before not only just the COVID-19 uh, crisis but also the incredible wave of social awareness around Black Lives Matter around uh, trans rights and so forth that it happens to have coincided with this year of 2020 and uh, my agent thinks we will close the deal next week and I'll start work on that. But at least I've got one more weekend to just kick back, sit on my favorite uh, easy chair uh, or out on my uh, balcony and enjoy uh, a lovely book and a nice cool drink. <laughs> much deserved, much deserved it appears. <laughs> Mr. Sawyer, I want to thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. This has been a real joy to me and like I said, I, I have discovered an entire new world to me that I cannot wait to dive into. Uh, where can people find and follow you, sir? Well, I am lucky enough, speaking of anniversaries, to be the first science fiction writer ever to have a website. And so I got a great URL, a great address for it. It is sfwriter.com. S is in science, F is in fiction, writer. Dot com. You'll find all about my new book, The Oppenheimer Alternative, my 23 previous books, Flash Forward, the TV series based on my novel, the same name, and so much else. There's over a million words of text spread over 800 documents on that website. And on social media, uh, my name is Robert J. Sawyer. So just take out the spaces and the period, cram it all together as Robert J. Sawyer. That's me on Twitter. That's me on Facebook. And that's me on Patreon. My books are should be in bookstores everywhere. I'll be angry if they aren't. And of course, <laughs> your favorite online bookseller as well. But all things being equal, give that much beat needed business to your local independent bookshop, please. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I will definitely have links to all of this in the show notes, everybody. So you can hop right on over to 
uh, to his website and uh, everywhere else that you can find him. Mr. Sawyer, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real joy. An absolute pleasure for me, Jason. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for me to step aside, have a drink and enjoy what is going to be a truly memorable reading from Robert J. Sawyer in his latest book, The Oppenheimer Alternative. Chapter 4, 1943. An epigraph. History, though coy, needs truth to be your handmaid. Hocan Chevalier. Some sunny day. Kitty Oppenheimer and Barbara Chevalier reached the song's rousing conclusion. Their husbands applauded. Oppie, that's Oppenheimer, clamping his cigarette between his teeth so he could do so with gusto. Kitty rose from the piano bench and the two women bowed theatrically. Oppie got up from the living room couch, clutching his empty martini glass and said, Another round? He knew the answer. Their two dinner guests considered his martinis legendary. Oppie himself took them as evidence that, although he'd settle on physics, he'd have made a damn good chemist, too. Kitty, a brunette, merely raised her thin eyebrows in a need-you-even-ask expression, and Barb, blonde with green eyes, declared an enthusiastic, yes, please. Oppie collected the other glasses on a sterling silver tray. He was about to turn toward the kitchen door when, to his surprise, Hocan Chevalier, an inch taller than Oppie's six feet, lifted himself from the couch. I'll give you a hand. Forsaking the company of two beauties for me, said Oppie. The tension between Hocan and Barb had been palpable all evening. The singing had helped, and Oppie hoped his remark would lighten the mood even more. He motioned with his head for Hokan to get the door, and the two of them entered the spacious kitchen, the smell of an almost-ready suckling pig greeting them. The heavy wooden door swung shut. We're going to miss you, Hokan said as Oppie put down the tray of used glasses, kitties and barbs obvious by their bright red lipstick marks. Berkeley won't be the same without you. Oppie had a second set of long-stemmed conical glasses in the freezer. He pulled them out and, his signature flourish, pressed each one face down, as though it were a cookie cutter, into a shallow pan filled with lime juice and honey. He was conscious of Hokan's eyes on him, watching the master at work. Any hint of where you're going? Having now set the glasses down, Oppie poured Black Bear Gin into his cocktail shaker and then, with a practiced flick of his wrist, added a splash of vermouth. He thought about replying, <laughs> somewhere even drier than my martinis, but no, that witticism had to die unspoken in the name of security. It was such a strange thing to get used to. And really, if, if he couldn't trust Hoke, his closest friend, whom could he? Sorry. He said affably, my lips are sealed. Hokan smiled, but tipped his head toward a vodka bottle sitting next to the sink. Genuine Russian, I see. <laughs> Thank God we're not at war with them. Ha, said Oppie as he expertly manipulated the shaker. Speaking of the Russians, Robert, do uh, you know George Eltonton? 
Eltonton was a chemical engineer at Shell Development. Was Hokan taking a dig at Eltonton's communist leanings? That wouldn't be in character. Hoke was as red as anyone. Not well, Oppie replied, apportioning his potent mixture among the four glasses. But he's been to this very house. He's a member of FACED, the Federation of Architects, Engineers, Chemists, and Technicians, and came to a meeting here a couple of years ago. I was trying to get the boys at the Rad Lab to join the American Association of Scientific Workers. A good union man, Hokan said nodding his approval. But Oppie wasn't sure if he meant him or Eltonton. It didn't go anywhere, continued Oppie. And just as well, Lawrence blew a gasket when he found out, wanted me to give him the names of those who'd been at the meeting. <laughs> Naturally, I refused. Commendable, said Hokan. Anyway, it's good to know you know George. He and I move in some of the same circles. Meaning, Oppie knew, the Communist Party. And a fellow at the Soviet consulate in San Francisco had a word with him. Yes, said Oppie, deploying olives now. Well, we're all on the same side. And since the Soviets, no, one is plenty. Well, the Soviets have gotten wind, I guess, of what's been going on at our university. You've never said, but everyone assumes it's of great importance. Oppie made no reply. And so George was wondering if, well, you know, in the, in the spirit of openness, if you were so inclined, that if you wanted to, just, well, any technical information that might went to him uh, could very discreetly find its way to your scientific colleagues in Russia. The wall clock ticked off seconds. Oppie kept his tone as even as he could. That's treason. Of course, of course, said Chevalier. I, I, I just thought you'd want to know. I want nothing to do with anything like that. Hokan nodded and helped himself to one of the glasses. He took a sip. Perfect, as always. It's a scene change. In May 1943, Oppie, Kitty, and their son Peter, who had just entered the Terrible Twos, arrived at the place that would variously be called Site Y, the Hill, the Mesa, or, in commemoration of the poplar trees that abounded here, Los Alamos. Oppie knew this part of northern New Mexico well. He'd spent the summer of 1922 here, an 18-year-old kid in need of toughening up following a string of illnesses before entering Harvard that fall. He had learned to ride horses then, and ever since, had been in love with the austere, feral countryside. He returned to this area with his younger brother Frank in the summer of 1928, leasing a rustic cabin made of halved tree trunks held together by adobe mortar, a cabin Robert continued to rent to this day. Upon first learning of its availability, he'd exclaimed, Hot dog! And the Spanish equivalent, Perro Caliente, had become the place's name. So, when General Leslie R. Groves and a few others had begun scouting a location for their secret atomic bomb lab, Oppie had led them to what he and the general quickly agreed was the perfect spot, a boys' ranch school situated atop the two-mile-long Perarito Plateau, 7,300 feet above sea level. 
Groves acquired it by eminent domain, and Oppie snared for his family one of the six existing houses originally occupied by the school's masters on what came to be known as Bathtub Row. Other accommodations, rude and shoddy since they were only expected to last the duration of the war, were soon under construction. They would have only showers. General Groves could have claimed one of the Bathtub Row houses for himself, but he wouldn't normally be on the Mesa. His principal office was in the War Building in Washington. But he was there the day Robert chose the Oppenheimer abode. I'm very good, he said. I'd have picked that one too. The general paused, something he rarely did, then said, I got you a little housewarming present. He handed a small tin case less than an inch wide to Oppenheimer. Snuff? said Oppie General. No, not snuff. And then Groves made an odd sound, which Oppie supposed was his chuckle. Mm. <laughs> I guess it's for snuffing, though, but he pointed at it. Open it up. Oppie dug a fingernail under the case's cover. It hinged back, revealing a small, brown, oval capsule surrounded by soft padding. Potassium cyanide, said Groves. You're to carry it with you until the war is over. And yes, before you ask, I've got one too. He patted a pocket. Everyone at the top levels is getting them. Good grief, General. Isn't that a little melodramatic? What do you think all this talk of security has been for? The Germans are doubtless trying to build an atomic bomb. So I bet my life are the Russians. But we've got the best minds, and the easiest thing for them to do is to kidnap you or other key members of your team. If you're captured, they will torture you, and they will succeed in getting you to talk. Unless you take that first. It's glass, covered in rubber, to help keep it from breaking accidentally. Don't swallow it. It'll go right through your system intact. Instead, chomp down on it. You'll be dead in a matter of minutes. Hoppy looked at the capsule. It was only the size of a pea. But it reminded him of an apple from long ago. As Oppie would say, hot dog. That was an incredible reading. Didn't I tell you? Robert J. Sawyer reading a sample chapter from the Oppenheimer Alternative, his brand new alternate history book that came out in June. I have already added several of his books in my reading queue, and I know you're going to want to do the same. So click that link in the show notes for everything Robert J. Sawyer and uh, get yourself a few books for yourself. Don't forget to also click for our sponsors and podcast friends alike and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next time when I'm back with a brand new author, a new book, and a brand new sample chapter. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next month. (laughs) This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.